Today marks the beginning of our Advent series. For the next four weeks, starting today and ending on Christmas Day, we're going to be taking a systematic look into what it means that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Christ isn't his last name, but it is a title. Jesus is the Christ, and titles are significant. I remember one of my first classes in community college was Biology 101. Talk about a class that makes you want to quit college. In one of our labs, I remember raising my hand to ask a question, and when my professor acknowledged me, I addressed her professor, and I proceeded with my question. If I remember correctly, she approached me, she leaned toward me, and she said, it's doctor, and she didn't answer my question. Titles matter. Titles are significant. In my professor's case, she had worked really, really hard to earn her doctorate in her respective field and wanted her new hard-earned title, doctor, to be acknowledged and respected by her peers and her students. Titles can designate achievements like doctor or champion. Titles can designate status like king or subject. Titles can designate function like servant or ruler. Jesus himself in the scriptures is given various titles, the great shepherd, great physician, the Lord, the son of God, the son of man. So if Jesus was given the title of Christ, it is incumbent upon us to know what it means for him to be the Christ. It would be a shame for Christ to be so common of a word to us as Christians, as Bible believers, as Bible readers, that when we hear it or we read it, we gloss right over it. If we do that, we lose the theological richness of such a title. And if we do that, we run the risk of getting Jesus wrong. When's the last time you stopped to consider what it means that Jesus is the Christ? If it's been a while, that's okay, because we're going to be doing that together from God's Word this Advent season. To give you a structure for our time today, the first half, uh, we'll be looking at a few New Testament passages as we seek to define what Christ means, and we'll look at some background information to put Christ in the historical context leading up to Jesus' birth and during his lifetime. Then the second half of our time, we're going to dive into Isaiah 45, and we'll consider what it means that Jesus is the only suitable Christ. So let me begin our time by reading some scripture from both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John. You can see it on the screen. First from Matthew. In Matthew 1, Matthew gives us a genealogy of Jesus Christ. At the end of the genealogy, in Matthew 1, verse 17, he says this. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon... 14 generations, and from the deportation to the Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. In Matthew 2, King Herod assembled the chief priests and scribes, and in verses 4 through 6, it says this, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler 
who will shepherd my people, Israel. Matthew 16, verses 15 through 16, Jesus says to his disciples, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Lastly, in Matthew 26, Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, and before the council of chief priests, scribes, and elders at the time. Verse 62, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Now let's read two passages from the gospel of John. John chapter one, verses 40 through 42. One of the two heard John, John the Baptist, speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The first, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. John chapter 4, last one, 25 through 26. The Samaritan woman at the well said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. From the verses in Matthew's gospel, we learn the Christ was foretold throughout the scriptures and by the prophets. The scriptures they had at the time are equivalent to our Old Testament. So the Old Testament foretells this Christ would come even down to the detail of where he would be born. Why? So that Israel could look for him. This Christ would be a ruler and shepherd God's people, Israel. This Christ would himself be the son of God. And for a mere man to claim such a title, it warranted death, according to the accusations that we saw from the high priest and the council. From John's gospel, we gain a helpful insight about this Christ. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew title Messiah, which means anointed one. Jesus being the Christ means that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the anointed one. Now, this is where titles matter. Messiah, when we hear it, may not initially mean much to us as 21st century Americans, other than we know Jesus is the Messiah. But This idea of Messiah was prominent throughout the Old Testament scriptures ever since God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3. We can see a promise of a Messiah, one to come in God's promise to Abraham that in his offspring, singular as Paul points out, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Then in God's promise to David that one would come after him to sit on his throne forever. This promise for a Messiah to come, not only seen in God's covenants like those, but all throughout the Old Testament are the reasons why Messiah was such a big deal to the Jews. 
There is one who would come who would be the Redeemer, the Savior of Israel, who would lead God's people as their king, an anointed one who would finally lead God's people out of captivity. This one would restore God's kingdom. The Jews were waiting for this one. The Messiah was on their minds. They were looking for this one, especially in what we now call the exilic and post-exilic periods. That's when Israel was exiled from their land. We read about that in the prophets, namely when they were conquered one after another by, by kingdoms, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Macedonia. You could hear them groaning, where is God in all this? Where is our Messiah? Eventually, they did return to their land post-exilic where they resided until the Romans took over. Just before Jesus was born, Israel seen groaning throughout history, waiting for God's promised redemption, now groaning under Roman rule. Where is the promised Messiah? Something interesting to think about that I came across this week as I was studying this. In Matthew 2, we read that King Herod was actually seeking to kill the newborn Christ. Why? Repeatedly throughout Jesus' ministry, after healings, miracles, etc., people acknowledge that he was the Christ, the Messiah. Even demons acknowledge this. But what did Jesus tell them to do? To be quiet about it. Why? Two disciples asked Jesus to sit at his right hand and his left when he comes into his kingdom. Why? Peter even tries to rebuke Jesus when Jesus says he's going to suffer and die. But why does he rebuke him? Wasn't Peter the first one to claim that he was the Christ? The problem in all this is that the general understanding and expectation for the Messiah figure had widely become interpreted politically. This one who would come would ultimately be a political deliverer. If people had heard that Jesus was the Messiah, the expectation would be that he would gather Israel together, revolt against Roman rule, succeed, and establish the kingdom of Israel as strong, if not the strongest power of the day. Jesus would deliver Israel from Roman rule politically. Think about in the Garden of Gethsemane. A mob with weapons was sent to arrest Jesus. Why? What did they expect? Well, if Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the way they understood him to be at the time, maybe, just maybe, he had already had his followers armed and ready to revolt. In Matthew 26, when he was before the council, they said it was blasphemous that he would claim to be the Christ. Then they brought him before Pontius Pilate, and what did they say? Luke chapter 23, verse 2. The Jews accused Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They believed Jesus' mission to be an earthly mission geared towards establishing an earthly kingdom, a king to take Caesar's place. The messianic expectation was that the Christ would be the king of Israel, would deliver Israel, would restore Israel. But we know now and can see that God had not planned to do this the way the Jews had expected. God's plan was not to provide temporary deliverance for his people through 
the means of a revolt. God's plan was not to fully and finally establish an earthly kingdom. God's plan wasn't even that his Messiah would provide physical deliverance from an earthly authority in that regard. God's plan was far greater, and praise God that it was. God's view was not just on the present, but past, present, and future. God's purposes didn't even stop with Israel, but extended to the ends of the earth. All nations, all tribes, all peoples and tongues would benefit from this Messiah, this Christ. God's plan spanned all of eternity. And it was breaking through here, breaking into the already as Jesus was born, as he lived, as he died, and as he rose from the dead, inaugurating his new kingdom. Not yet realized by us, but growing as a mustard seed grows, the smallest seed in all the garden, growing to become the largest tree in the garden, the kingdom of God. One not built with hands, one that moth and rust cannot destroy. An everlasting kingdom where Jesus, the Christ himself, will dwell with his people forever and ever. This was God's plan. Eternally better than the messianic expectation of the day, which was fully understood as such by Jesus, God incarnate, who sought to keep his messiahship under wraps. Have you ever wondered that? Why would he do such a thing? It's because Jesus understood from the scriptures that he was the Messiah, and he also understood that the Messiah was the suffering servant of Isaiah, who himself would be pierced for our transgressions. He understood it would be through his sacrifice that God's plan of redemption would be accomplished. This is not how the Jews were thinking. This isn't how most of his disciples were thinking. Why else would they be hiding in a locked room after Christ's crucifixion had they not thought his messiahship had failed? They thought it was all over because they thought it was an earthly kingdom. Jesus kept it under wraps even to the end before Pontius Pilate so that there would be no doubt whatsoever that this one who came was the suffering servant who would conquer all kingdoms, visible and invisible through his death, burial, and resurrection, who would forgive transgressions and sins, making atonement for them by his own blood poured out on the cross so that all those who would repent and put their faith and trust in him would be made new. They would be reconciled to God. God the Father, who would be made heirs of Christ's eternal kingdom. This Messiah would save them and would never be separated from the love of this Christ for all of eternity. God's plan for the Messiah, through the Messiah, were far better than what the Jews at the time had come to expect. This Messiah, this Christ, Jesus the Christ, brought salvation, an everlasting salvation, a salvation hope for those who trusted in the promises of God in the Old Testament, a salvation seen by those who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a salvation we now receive by faith as we look back to the Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected in our place. Israel was looking for this Messiah. They needed this Messiah, yes. But you and I need this Messiah too. The whole world needs this Messiah. Jesus didn't bring salvation only to his own people of his day. 
Jesus brings the hope of salvation for all people, everywhere, throughout all time. Jew and Gentile alike can be justified by Christ alone. Only Jesus the Christ can set us free from our sin, can redeem us from our sin, can reconcile us to God and make us new. Jesus is the Christ that we worship, church. Jesus is the Christ for you. And if you're here today and and you don't know Christ, kids, teenagers, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you might even hear about Jesus all the time at home. You may get sick and tired of hearing about him here. But I'm telling you, kids, teens, students, even you need to repent and put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus died for your sin. Only he could do it. Only Jesus rose from the dead. Only Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, now king in heaven, that will one day come again. And when he comes, every knee will bow. So bow your knee now. 1 Peter 5 says, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So that at the proper time, God himself would exalt us. The king would exalt us. What does that mean? It means if we bow our knee to King Jesus now by faith, church, he will raise us up when he comes into his kingdom. And we will reign with him in his eternal kingdom. Heirs with him, our Lord, our Christ, our Messiah. This is why Christ is important. This is why Messiah is so important and important to follow throughout the scriptures. Jesus is the Christ. In fact, Jesus is the only suitable Christ. For the remainder of our time, let's look at Isaiah 45 together and consider what this means. Isaiah 45 is on page 605 through 607 if you're using a blue pew Bible, if you don't have your own Bible. Isaiah 45. As you turn there, I want to publicly say I listened to Pastor Chad's sermons this week. And brother, I've already told you it was a great sermon. It was solid points. You left us with Great application and convicting questions to consider. Church, he gave you seven points. Perfect number. And I would never do that to you. So after we read Isaiah 45, I'm going to give you ten points. Ten points. And I will thus secure the record for the most points in a sermon. They'll be easy to follow. It's going to be a logical progression. I just want you to see clearly, even from a text like Isaiah 45, that Jesus is the only suitable Christ, and I want to make application at each point. So let's do this together. Isaiah 45, and before we read, in verse 1, you see that it says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, anointed. That's the same word as Messiah, the anointed one. But this does not mean that Cyrus was to be viewed as the Messiah, to come, Cyrus was a pagan king. He was the king of Persia, and Persia would conquer Israel. Um, instead, we should understand this 
as anointed as it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to signify that the Lord sets something apart or someone apart to a specific task. For example, utensils in the tabernacle were anointed. Priests were anointed. So here Cyrus is anointed by the Lord, and in context we see from the rest of verse 1, God is actually going to use this pagan king to clear the path and restore his people Israel. We see that again in verse 13, you'll see. So in that sense, he had been anointed by God, but he is not the anointed one. So with that being said, let's read Isaiah 45 together. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who, ha- who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth. And created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior, All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. 
For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Point number one. There is one God, the Lord. There is one God, the Lord. Verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Verse 12, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands. Verse 14, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. Verse 22, for I am God and there is no other. In the context, God is condemning idolatry and idol worship. Idols are futile because handcrafted gods are no gods at all. In fact, handcrafted or hoped for or otherwise imagined altogether, no other gods exist because there is only one, the Lord God, the creator of all that was, is, and ever will be. There are no other gods but the one true God. Maybe you're here this morning or maybe you know someone this morning who believes in multiple gods. Theologically and philosophically, this is a fallacy. For God to be God, by definition, he must be the supreme being over all things. There could not be other gods if God existed because they would no longer be gods to begin with. Maybe you're here or you know someone who believes that the universe is God. If you do, I would encourage you to ask the universe hard questions. Where does the universe come from? Is it eternal? Is it self-existent? Is it conscious? Do you believe that the universe has ears to hear you or a heart to have compassion on you? It doesn't. The universe was created by the Lord, the one true God, and it's under his authority. The universe, in fact, answers to him, not even to us. It was created just like you and I were by the Lord, for the Lord, the one true God. 
Maybe you're here or you know someone who does believe there is one God, but it's a different God than the God who has revealed himself through his word, through the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Back to where we started. There is no other God but the Lord. Ask your God, whoever he is, hard questions. Is he eternal? Is he unchanging? Is he perfect? Is he immutable? Is he righteous and holy? Does he only do righteousness and justice as the Lord our God has revealed himself to be? Or is your God, as our Mormon friends would believe, an exalted man who is finite, created? Or as our Muslim friends believe, a God who is all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, yet still requires mankind to earn salvation that Allah himself has no Christ to purchase. Ask yourself hard questions. And I pray the Lord God would reveal himself to you. And I pray the Lord God would reveal himself to the friends that you are ministering to. Point number two, the Lord speaks the truth and declares what is right. This means that all of God's words are true. Church, hear me when I say this. God will never lie to you, ever. What he has said to us in his word and what he's declared to us through the person and work of Christ is true. It is right. As we saw in 1 John a few weeks ago, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. We see that in verse 19 through 21 of Isaiah 45. I did not speak in secret. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Church, this should create in us a deep trust in the one true God. As the one true God, he is the most honest being in existence. He's the most trustworthy being in existence. Do you trust your God? Do you trust what he says? Do you believe that his promises that he's made to you in Christ are true? His promises to be with you. His promises to never leave you nor forsake you. To be a lamp to your feet, a light to your path. His promises that when you repent, he casts your sins as far as the east is from the west and he remembers them no more. His promise that he is your strength and your shield, that he is a refuge to all who call on him. Don't just say you believe it. How does your belief in these truths work themselves out in your daily life? What do your actions say about what you believe? If you believe that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you, do you entertain thoughts or feelings of self-isolation or loneliness regularly? Brother, sister, you're not alone. The Lord is with you. Believe it. If you believe that he's a lamp to your feet and a light to your path, do you go about making decisions in your life without praying and asking God for guidance or for wisdom? If he is a lamp to our feet, should we not ask for his shining light to guide us? Ask God for guidance and wisdom. He will guide you. Believe it. Believing that the Lord speaks the truth has implications on the truths we confess. There are a lot of messages out there about who God is that are false. But we can trust what God says in his word. Do you interpret life through the lens of God's word? Or are you tempted and find yourself more often than not interpreting God's word and who God is through your life? Be careful. 
Believe the Lord's words over your own words. In your head, in your heart. Believe the Lord's words over the words you hear around you, in the world, from family, from social media, from your job, from coworkers, commercials, entertainment, anything that is telling you something different about God or about what he has said in his word. Let God speak for himself as he has. Number three, the Lord declares that he is the Savior. God himself is the Savior. This is interesting. It implies a few things. First, it implies that there is something we need saving from. Second, it implies that we can't save ourselves. Third, that only God can save us. But what do we need saving from? Well, the Lord has told us in his word. It's from our transgressions and sins. The Lord declares this all throughout Isaiah's prophecy and all the rest of Scripture. I encourage you specifically, though, to go read Isaiah's prophecy all the way through with your eyes set on words like transgressions and sins and see what he does with them. Here's a taste. First, it says, all of us have sinned against God. Isaiah 24, verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. That's mankind. For they, mankind, have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, This is the covenant that God made with mankind. You'll find that our sin has separated us from God. Isaiah 59.2 But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Friend, that means if you're living in unrepentant sin apart from Christ... The one true God, there is no other, does not hear you. Do you call out to God? And do you expect him to answer your prayers for this, for that, or for the other? God is not a genie in a bottle that we rub to get what we need when we need it. God does not answer to us when we want him to. God, the one true God, tells us here, sins have separated us from him, and if we are in our sins, he does not listen. You've got to get right with God on his terms, not yours. It's God's terms. We're under God's judgment for our sin against him, and only he can deliver us. Idols are so-called, or so-called gods cannot deliver us because they themselves cannot deliver themselves. Only God can deliver us. Isaiah 43, verses 11 through 13. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? If only God can deliver us from sin, what hope do we have if we don't call out to him? Call out to the Lord, the one true God, and be saved. There's no sin too wicked that God cannot or will not forgive, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter where you found yourself in life, no matter how many times you've said this is the last time, and then I'm going to change everything. God alone can save, 
and he will do it because of who he is. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is the Savior. Call out to him through repentance and trust in the Son, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. Number four, the Lord declares that he is the Savior of Israel and all the ends of the earth. It's verses 22 and 23. Here's where Messiah, who was assumed to save Israel, to lead Israel, to deliver Israel, actually broadens in scope. It's more than Israel. The Lord says he is the Savior and tells all the nations to come to him and be saved, not just Israel. We saw this in our Jonah series. The Lord's desire is to save the nations, and he will. It's a promise that when the church is gathered together in the end, when we stand before the throne of God, there will be those of every tribe and language and people and nation. And what a glorious day that's going to be. What a glorious day when we all raise our voices and sing together praises to the one true God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But that day is not today, church. So what does that mean for us? That means we ought to step across social, economic, ethnic, racial barriers, whatever the world might say separates you from me. And we need to meet people where they are and share the gospel with them where they are. You've probably heard it said before, but I'll say it again this morning. You don't have to go overseas to be a missionary because the nations are right down the street, right next door. Make friends with the nations. Have people into your home. Share meals with them. Share your life with them. This is good all for the purpose of sharing the gospel with them. Let me ask you this. Do you do this? This is a lifestyle choice. It might mean reprioritizing all the extracurricular activities that we have on the calendar so that we can meet the lost where they are and be lights for Christ there. Hear me when I say this. It's not enough for us to be friends or friendly with our neighbors to no end, for no purpose. Simply for the sake of getting along. Their life should be more valuable to us than to just passively be friends with them for the foreseeable future without ever having hard conversations with them about the necessity of faith in Christ. It is not enough to be friends with people of different faith backgrounds and simply inquire of their life and watch them as they continue praying to lifeless idols who don't even care because they're not even real. When we know King Jesus and he hears every word that we pray. Are you prioritizing those kinds of relationships? Those kinds of hard conversations with lost people you, you genuinely care about. They're your friends. If they're your friends, we ought to love them with the truth. Who are you loving today? Who are you loving today that the Spirit might just work on and save and bring into our fellowship in two, three years? Who is it? you don't have someone, pray for someone. Number five, the Lord will bring his salvation 
into the world through his Messiah. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, this is what it says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Did you notice this? A human being would be born who would be called by names that can only be attributed to God himself. God himself, the Savior, would become a man. God himself, incarnate, would be the king. The prophecies remain intact. He will come from the line of David. This anointed one, this Messiah, long foretold, who would establish God's kingdom is God's himself as a man. God said it would happen like this. It would have to happen like this. Otherwise, God would be a liar. He would have therefore not spoken the truth or declared what is right if he himself did not leave his throne to take on human flesh. And if God was a liar, then we are all without hope. But God is not a liar. He always tells the truth. Number six, Jesus is the only one who could have been the Christ. He's the only one who could have been the Christ. It can be said of no other person in history that that person has fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah to come. That that person would be the Christ. No one else in history, only one Jesus. Hear this. One who would come from the line of David, the line of Abraham, who would be the son of God. Genesis 28, 14, Isaiah 11, 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 89. Born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jeremiah 31, 22. Born in Bethlehem, Micah 5. Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah 9. One who would be the good shepherd, Ezekiel 34. A light to the nations, Isaiah 60. Who would be the redeemer, the savior, Genesis 18, 18. Mocked, insulted, beaten, falsely accused, Psalm 22, 7 through 8, 27, 12, 69. For his garments to be casted lots for by soldiers. Psalm 22, verse 18. Cursed on a tree. Deuteronomy 22, 21, 23. No bone in his body broken, yet both of his hands, his feet, his side pierced. Numbers 9, 12, Zechariah 12, 10, Psalm 22, 1 through 31. Dying for our sins, resurrecting from the dead on the third day. Jonah 2, verse 1, Psalm 49, verse 15. Now the lamb sacrificed for our sins, yet reigning on the throne of God forever. Zechariah 2, with everlasting dominion. Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. The list, church, is longer because all of the scriptures attest to the Christ who would come. The Messiah and every claim, every single one of them, every prophecy, every hope, every expectation was fulfilled. These could only have been fulfilled by Jesus from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. In these last days, and we are in the last days, people will come who will claim to be Christ. But as you see, as we see from the scriptures, None of those things are true of them. So they could not be the Christ. 
Be watchful and be wise. Don't fall for those kinds of claims. People claiming to be Christ, even with miraculous works, but none of those things from the Scriptures are true of them. Number seven, Jesus is the only Christ. There is no promise for multiple messiahs, only one promise for one messiah, because there's only one true God, and there is therefore only one messiah. Church, we believe in the one true Jesus Christ. You may know people, you may have friends, you may be in evangelistic relationships right now with people who believe that there is someone or something else that can save them. Maybe you here today believe something or someone else can save you, that can be Christ for you. False Christs go by many names. Joseph Smith, Muhammad, Allah, the universe, accolades, achievements, good morals, you name it, church attendance. If they aren't Jesus, they cannot save us from our sin. They cannot reconcile us to the one true God. Consider how to share the truth in love with those who have been blinded by Satan's devices. They're lost like sheep without shepherds. Even in their own sinfulness, they're lost and blind to it. But whatever you do, Share the truth in love with them. They need it, and you have it. Share it. And also be quick to remind yourself of the truth, that Jesus is the only Christ. What are ways in your life you're tempted to believe in other Christs? Sometimes, functionally, we live like we can save ourselves, don't we? I wasn't good enough today. Got to do better. I need to fix that. Oh, I... I messed up too much today, God. Maybe, maybe God loves me less. Maybe he doesn't love me anymore. Maybe I lost my salvation. We're not saviors and not of saviors of ourselves. We can't live like we're our own functional saviors and we ought not put unnecessary burdens like that on our shoulders by living like functional saviors for ourselves or living like functional saviors for others. Whether your children, your parents, your neighbors or your friends or your siblings or whoever else. Only God can save them. Do not burden yourself thinking you have to save them. Only God can do it, not us. And God does it perfectly, and he does it eternally through Jesus Christ. Give that burden that you feel for yourself, for others. Give that burden to the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord to change your hearts, to change their hearts. Trust him to save their souls. He delights in doing it. He wants to do it. He doesn't ask us to save anyone. He asks us to trust him. So trust him. Number eight, the Christ is the savior of God's people. Initially, the people of Israel were God's chosen people. He set them apart to be so, and we see throughout the Old Testament, Israel was meant to be his light, to draw the world in. But now, in Christ, that Christ has come, our Messiah has accomplished his purposes, God has made a new people, one people, one from the many, Jew and Gentile alike, his church. And he commissioned his church to shine as a light to the nations. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
If Christ saves his church, his, pro, his bride, his people, we need to be about the business of making sure the bride is ready when the bridegroom returns. Christ's church doesn't grow when Christ's church doesn't go. We need to pray and do. Are we characterized individually, you and me, and corporately, us as a body, a local church, as believers who go? Do you go? Who are you going to right now? If you don't have someone, again, I say pray and ask God for someone. Who are we going to? That's something to think through. Who are you discipling? Discipling involves helping someone. I would encourage you to just find someone to disciple in this church. Read the Bible with them. Pray with them. Intercede for them. Care for them. Do life on life with them. But discipling involves helping someone, including a lost person. Take one step closer to Jesus. We usually separate the terms discipleship and evangelism for the sake of clarity. But think about the two together right here. Who are you walking with toward Jesus as you share the gospel with them, intercede on their behalf, minister to their needs? And then if the Lord saves them, we ought to continue doing what we've been doing. Walking with them through the scriptures, showing them, discipling them what it means to be a Christian. Are you doing that with other members in this church? Are you doing that with people in the world that you know? We have to do that. And if each one of us is doing this individually, and if we are doing this corporately as a church, if we are deliberate in trusting the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, asking the Spirit for help, for fruit, we corporately, Lord willing, will be able to baptize these believers and welcome them into Christ's church, visibly seen here at our local church, our gathering, Redeemer Baptist Church. We can welcome them here. Do you want to see that? Let's go, church. Let's go. Number nine. If Jesus is the Christ, and the Christ is our Savior, and God alone is the Savior, Jesus must be the one true God. We can understand the only language. We can understand that. But only suitable? This gets at the suitable part. If Jesus was just a man, he could not save you. He could not save you from your sins, because he would be finite, a man just like you and me. And the cost of our debt is infinite because we've sinned against a holy, infinite God. If Jesus was only God and not really a man, then he could not justly pay for the penalty for the sins of mankind because he would not be a man. Man sinned. Man deserves death. God would not be just if he simply took away sin's penalty and got rid of it. He would cease to be a righteous judge, a holy one. He had to be fully God to pay the eternal debt we owed. He had to be a man to pay it in our place, which makes him suitable. Number 10, the last point. Jesus is the God-man, making him alone the only suitable Christ. Only God incarnate, Jesus the Christ, could have saved you and I from our sin and he did it. He did it. Planned it in eternity past, accomplished it in his sinless life, though he was tempted and tried in every way as a man through hardship 
and suffering. Our Lord Jesus trekked through, obeyed his Father, focused on his Father, ultimately to the point of laying his own life down for us so that he could bring us back to God. He did it. He's the Christ. He is our Messiah. And we should end where we started. Hear God's word with me one more time. And let's be encouraged by what Jesus did as he left his heavenly throne and became a man. And then let's see where he is now and where he'll be forever. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, church, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, you possess it, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men like you and me. And being found in human form like you and me, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And like we saw in Isaiah 45, Verse 23, we see here again. How will every knee bow? At the name of Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Christ we know. This is the Christ who was, who is, and who is to come. This is the Christ that we not only will worship and see this Advent season, but we worship him and see him regularly in his word. This is the Christ we share. Let's pray.